One of the things that happened is that uh, I forgot to let Cinda know that we're not just doing two or three verses in Isaiah. We're doing the whole chapter. One of those things that happened. This is actually a, was initially a series that I did back in 2004. And one of the, one of the joys of being a pastor, I use that term loosely, is Advent season. Uh, because you feel a need to have an Advent series. And there's only so many Advent series you can create. And so uh, sometimes we have to rehash things. And so as I thought about that, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do this one. And, uh, you know, as I looked at my old sermon, I said, wow, that was really bad. <laughs> I'm completely redoing this thing. So it's changed a lot and uh, expanded beyond those few verses to encompass the whole. So let's hope this one's a whole lot better than that one was. All right. Isaiah 29. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year. Let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel. And there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech shall be bowed down, your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. And from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts, with thunder and with light, with earthquake and with great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating, and awakes, and his hunger is not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, and awakes faint, and his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Astonish yourselves, and be astonished. Blind yourselves, and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and has covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to, to the one who can read it, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, 
And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord the counsel, your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the day? That the thing that should be, that, yeah, that the thing made should say of its maker, do not, you, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name, they will sanctify the Holy One of, of Jacob, and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. May God bless the reading of His Word this morning. Come, O Lord, stir our hearts, call us back to Yourself. Kindle Your fire in us and carry us away. Let us smell your fragrance and taste your sweetness. Let us love you and hasten to your side. As our brother Augustine prayed. Amen. As I noted, um, I was having trouble trying to figure out what in the world to do for Advent this year since uh, pressing on with the trial of Jesus didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense this time of year. So... As I was uh, working through this, uh, Mark had, McCoy had asked me if I was willing to write an article for the Orlando, not the Orlando, the Oro Valley Voice. And so I said, yeah, I think I have time for that. And so really what that article was is sort of um, inadvertently flavoring or coloring, however though you may want to perceive this, my Advent sermon and series for that article was on the unwanted Messiah. And how there's a sense in which the whole world, or at least this country, celebrates Christmas and yet tends to hold the one that is celebrated, at the very least, at arm's length. That this Jesus, whom the Scriptures teach as God who became man, is essentially the unwanted Messiah. And so we're going to explore that over the next few weeks as to why he is an unwanted Messiah 
but also get to the good news in the midst of all of that as well. So fear not. It shall not be all uh, ashes and sackcloth. <laughs> should be very little of that, I hope. Um, but nonetheless, because it's odd to sort of not want a baby, isn't it? I mean, obviously we understand that there are women who sometimes find the timing of pregnancy to be inconvenient, but when there's a baby right there, who doesn't want to hold the baby? Really? I mean, think of little Zeke. Who hasn't wanted to hold little Zeke? Right? And so it seems strange for us uh, to consider an unwanted Messiah. The big idea that uh, I think is communicated by this text is that Jesus humbles proud hearts in order to give them joy. He humbles proud hearts in order to give them joy. And the first thing I want us to recognize is that the problem we see isn't the real problem. This prophecy of Isaiah was most likely given around uh, 702 or 703 B.C. It has to do with the problem of Assyria that uh, Judah had. Already Assyria had taken uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, away into exile, and Judah was a vassal to this powerful nation of Assyria. And if you know anything about Assyria, you need to know this. The last thing you wanted to do was to get on Assyria's bad side. Because very bad things would happen to you. Like, well, they'd come lay siege to your city, they'd knock down your walls, they'd carry all of your people away and put them in a foreign land. No one really wants that, do they? And so Judah is sort of dealing with this fear of Assyria. When is our time going to come? And one of the things that we see that they're probably doing here is making overtures to Egypt. Come, help us get Assyria off our back. This prophecy was most likely fulfilled in 701 when Assyria came. And Assyria laid siege. These Israelites, sorry, these, uh, these Judahites, these people in the southern kingdom, they would see a multitude of foreign foes. They would see a multitude of the ruthless, which is an apt term for the Assyrians, because they were ruthless. And so the picture here is of armies encamped around Jerusalem, seeking to tear down its walls. And so we see that Assyria presents itself, so to speak, as the problem that the original audience saw that kept them from living what I will call the Judean dream. You see, the dream that they had, most likely, was that they could worship their God in peace. That they would be free to worship Him without feeling like they had to make concessions to the gods around them that they could be a prosperous nation, a strong nation, a secure nation that didn't have to worry about Assyria coming and taking all of their wealth, whether it was money or people. And so I think they had a Judean dream that included significance and safety and security. 
they had a dream. And Assyria threatened that dream. And so for them, it it appeared that Assyria was the problem. And that if God would just get rid of Assyria, then everything would be okay. Right? As we saw from our reading in Matthew, Jesus quotes this passage to the people there. And so this had some application to them as well. And if we were to think about them, so to speak, their problem was not Assyria, because Assyria was long gone. God had, in fact, gotten rid of Assyria. But Rome was their problem. Rome was not at the gate waiting to get in. Rome had already gotten in, and they were now under subjugation of Rome. And many people wanting to live the Judean dream, part of it was free of Rome, free of Rome. If only we could be free of Rome, then everything would be okay. Let's think about us today. What do we look at and see as the real problem? In many ways, it depends on who you are. But all of these will be tied into safety or security, significance, Prosperity. For some people, they think the real problem is ISIS. If only God would do something about those terrorists who are forming this Islamic state, if only God would fix that, all would be well. Some of us think the problem is the politicians. If only the earth would open up and swallow all of them, all would be well. Others might perhaps think that climate change is the big problem. There are certainly a few politicians who think that it's the big problem. Some people think it's the police. That if only we would get rid of the police, there wouldn't be a problem. And I wouldn't want to see what would happen if that happened. Refugees. Some people think refugees are the big problem. Some people think unwanted children are the big problem. Whatever you think the problem is, that will determine the kind of Messiah that you want, that you seek, that you receive. And it will also indicate whether you receive the real Messiah. We tend, unfortunately, to try and make Jesus into the shape of the Messiah that our problems need. We tend to make him into a politician, or perhaps a soldier, or perhaps a doctor. But Isaiah would tell you, if he were sitting in this room, that the problem that you see isn't the real problem however much you want to believe it is. And so when we fail to see the true problem, we find that Jesus isn't the Messiah that we want. Secondly, the problem God sees is the real problem. What is it that God sees? 
that if we could sum this up through this passage up in one way, it would be that Judah's biggest problem was Judah. They were their own biggest problem. In the same way, we are our own biggest problem. That's sort of an undeniable thing, I would imagine. Let's see how it kind of plays out a little bit in this uh, prophecy of an Isaiah 29. He starts off in this very odd fashion by saying, Ariel, Ariel, which is not a name that you find used really anywhere else of the city of Jerusalem. We do find it in Ezekiel 43. So we understand precisely what this term refers to, and it is the altar hearth. We see that from the context in Isaiah 43, and the altar hearth, four cubits, and from the altar hearth projecting upward, four horns. And so he's, Isaiah, sorry, Ezekiel is describing what the altar is supposed to look like, and in the center is the hearth where you burn everything, like the hearth of the fireplace, okay? It's where everything gets burned up. And so when he's saying Ariel, Ariel, he's pointing to Jerusalem as if it was an altar hearth. And this, I believe, means a couple of things. First, what they think it means and what God means. What they think it means is that we, Judah, Jerusalem, we have the true worship. We're not like those northern people who got carted off with all their corrupted and impure worship. We got it down because we have the true city. We have the true temple. And wink, wink, as long as we have that, we are good. So they were trusting in their worship. They were trusting in the fact that they had the temple, which was a good thing, that they had tried to follow God's law in terms of how to worship, which is a good thing. But instead of looking to God in that, they were looking to that in and of itself. And as long as we're doing the right things, as long as we're offering the right sacrifices at the right time of day, all should be well. So they were boasting in and relying on their worship. They were into their feasts, we see this. But we see as well that they were focused on the ritual. They were what we would call formalists. It was all in sort of in the doing of these things. They become very formal in their worship and very disconnected from God in their worship as though It's the doing of the worship that matters and not the God they worship that matters. And we see that most prominently in the passage that Jesus quoted in Matthew and said that Isaiah prophesied properly about you, these people uh, that Jesus was speaking to, when he says that you draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts far from me. And so they're going through the motions. They're saying the proper prayers. They're being in the right place at the right time. They look like they're honoring God. 
in our context, it would be they're showing up on Sunday, they're standing when they're supposed to stand, they're sitting when they're supposed to sit, they're singing when they're supposed to sing, but they're not engaging God because their hearts are somewhere else. As we think of the many sins that Judah struggled with that we see in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, one of that, one of those things was that comes up again is or again and again is Sabbath breaking. Meaning instead of engaging God with worship, what they were doing was thinking about business. Their kingdom. Not God's God's kingdom. And so their hearts were disconnected from him while doing the very thing that they're supposed to be doing with God. It's, it's sort of like, if I'm supposed to be with my wife, holding her hand, stroking her hair, showing attention and love to my wife, but my mind is somewhere else if I'm thinking about the Red Sox. It looks like I'm being attentive and caring towards my wife, but really my heart belongs in Boston. Okay? That's them. And the frightening thing is that can be us. I'm sure your heart is not in Boston, but it's someplace. And when it's supposed to be with God, it can't be someplace else. John Newton notes that experience testifies that a long course of ease and prosperity without painful changes has an unhappy tendency to make us cold and formal in our secret worship, and I would add our public worship. That when life is really easy, we see this, it's It's told to us in Deuteronomy 8 that when we get good stuff, when we prosper, we tend to become proud and forget our God. And that is all that it is. This is it's played out here in Isaiah 29. They were at one point prosperous in recent history. They had gotten proud, and they forgot God. But they still went through the mechanics of worship. Not only is Jerusalem called Ariel, but we know precisely that it's Jerusalem because it says where David encamped. And so they boasted as well, not just in their worship connected with Moses, but also in the kingship of David. Where we are where David ruled. David's on our side, so to speak, if he was still alive. But, you know, they're resting in the city of David instead of the God of David. So they think they're in a magical place where bad stuff can't happen to them, like what happened to the northern kingdom. We can't be carted off because we're in Jerusalem. Mm. 
So they trusted in their worship and they trusted in the Davidic covenant as some people would trust in their lucky rabbit's foot. Like it was some magical thing that would take place. And so Isaiah continues to essentially say that in reality they are blind, they're drunk, they're sound asleep. And this includes the prophets, the very ones that should have been been sounding the clarion call of repent, repent. Not only that, but they think that God does not see their foolishness. They think that they can hide from God, that God can not see, you know, sort of like, you know, Superman can see through everything, right? Except lead. And so it's as if they're in some leaden uh, bomb bunker, thinking God can't see what we're plotting today. God can't see through the lead walls. So they think. So they hope. But as we see in places like Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Oh, where shall I flee from your presence? And of course, the answer is there is no place I can go. And we're like the runaway bunny. Mom is always following. Mom always catches up. God sees. There's no place we can flee from Him. We see in Hebrews 4 that no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. And so those things that you do or think that no one else knows about, guess what? God knows about. You can't hide them from Him like you can hide them from everybody else. Not only that, but we see Romans 2, verse 16. On that day, Jesus is, uh, Paul is talking about when Jesus returns, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So there's no hiding from God as much as we might try to hide from God. So what about us? That's them. We too can rest in our religious rights. We too can have that temptation to go through the motions. As long as I show up on Sunday, I'm okay. doesn't matter whether or not I actually engage with God and grow in grace. Whether or not I believe what we're saying. It's okay. Some people might have a an assurance, a false assurance in their baptism. It's okay, I've been baptized. You must believe in that which your baptism declares to you. People might think that it's okay to not be engaged. But we can also rest in religious leaders. And his commentary on this passage, Calvin notes, of course, remember this is during the Reformation, and he says, Oh, this is just like the papists. Okay, They're thinking that as long as they have a pope, they're all okay. And there are some Protestants to whom we should say, or could say, as long as they have Calvin, they think they're okay. Calvin did not die for you. 
I love John Calvin. I might not have liked him if I met him. I don't know. But Calvin did not die for me. We might rest in our political leaders, or try to. If only we have the right guy in office, all will be well. We might rest in our citizenship or any number of other idols that we think will get us the American dream. God sees the real problem in our lives. And the good news is is that he sent a Messiah that is suitable to the task for the real problems, not the fake problems. So thirdly, this is the bad news and the good news. It's all wrapped up in one. But Messiah humbles hearts by reversing circumstances. He humbles hearts by reversing circumstances. And that's why I've called this part of the unwanted Messiah the humbler of hearts. And that's part of why he's unwanted. Who wants their heart humbled? Oh, I don't see any hands in the air. Let's see what God says here. He says, I will distress Ariel. It is not really the Assyrians who are the problem. It is not really the Assyrians who are waging war on Jerusalem at this point in time. It is God Himself who surrounds Jerusalem with towers. He's just using Assyria to do it. And He's turning Jerusalem into a hearthstone, not in the sense of a place of proper worship, but He's going to burn it to the ground. Now, this doesn't happen by the Assyrians. God is going to relent when it comes to the Assyrians. But Jerusalem is going to be like an altar hearth. And Judah is going to be like a sin offering. And here we see the horrible price of idolatry, of looking for our security for our significance, for our satisfaction, someplace other than God Himself. So, that's the bad news. That Jesus really is, I believe, willing to burn your house down, metaphorically, to get your heart. Think of Trudy right now in the ER. There's a sense in which he has her heart, but maybe he's trying to get Mark's heart by burning down his house, by showing him that that which he thinks will give him life only produces death. I was there. Girlfriend number two. I thought that was my future. I thought that that was where I would find significance. I thought she was the person with whom I would spend the rest of my life. God burned it down. Because he was more concerned about whether he had my heart than whether I had her heart. Burned it down. 
That's the bad news, in a sense. The good news is that Jesus puts himself on the altar so that if you're a Christian, God does not destroy you, God is not punishing you, but that God is rather purifying you. Okay? And so, I mean, there's the initial conversion experience that some people who don't grow up in the church have, like me, where God destroys their lives so that all they have is Jesus. Some of you have been there and know this. But even as Christians, there are times when we can start to worship idols. Things become a little too important in our lives, and he's not content with that, and so he will bring affliction, not to destroy us, but to call us back. Okay? And the reason why it doesn't destroy us is because Jesus gave himself on the altar, that Jesus gave himself as the sacrifice for our sin. Let's continue with a little bit of Isaiah. He says, you turn things upside down. And this is precisely what Messiah does. He turns things upside down in order to humble hearts. You see, there are those who think they're on top. In the, in the culture of Jerusalem of the day, they had the power. They had the prosperity. They thought they were secure. And they shall come to nothing. They shall cease. They shall be cut off. Destroyed. That was what was going to happen. It's similar, I think, to what we see in Luke 2 when the baby Jesus is brought to the temple for presentation and Simeon, who has been waiting to see the Messiah, holds him and blesses him and says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. We see that in Luke 2. In the sense that that stumbling stone that is sometimes talked about, that Jesus becomes that test, so to speak. And those who think they are something will be brought to nothing. And those who know they're nothing will be brought to something. But these people who are cut off, these people who are brought to nothing, these are the people who don't want Messiah precisely because he threatens their way of life. He threatens their idols. That's why they don't want him. That's why so many people and our culture really want nothing to do with the real Jesus because he threatens the status quo in their lives. He threatens the things they look to for security and for satisfaction and for significance because he wants to be the one they look to for security and 
satisfaction and significance. So he threatens their understanding of life. And they, in a sense, go down with the ship. Because they aren't willing to let go of those things that will drag them to the bottom of the ocean. But we also see those who know they are nothing. Those who are on the bottom. What the, uh, Isaiah calls the meek and the poor. Alec Motyer talks about this. He says, the humble or meek are the underdogs. Th- those who are at the bottom of life's heap. Everyone wants to sign up for that one, don't they? Jesus put me at the bottom of the heap of life. No. We all want to be at the top of the heap. Or at least near the top. Continuing about the needy, he says, the needy are those capable of being pushed around by the stronger, more influential people and vested interests. And so it's these people that end up welcoming the Messiah. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is reminding them, not many of you were noble. Significance. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were rich. In other words, most of the people who were in the Corinthian church would be characterized by humble or needy. What happens to them? They obtain fresh joy. Jesus brings them joy in Him. They shall exalt or rejoice. And so the Messiah refreshes them. The Messiah restores them to a holy joy that is centered in Him. Hmm. So we see a big contrast between those that Jesus raises, R-A-Z-E-D, okay, the, the exalted ones that he brings low, and the humble that he raises, R-A-I-S-E-S, that he exalts. Some are brought low. Some who, as it says, those who go astray in the Spirit, those who once were those who murmured, something's going to happen. They now come to understanding. They now accept instruction. (laughs) Indeed, this is part of why Jesus pronounces the the, uh, Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus turns it all upside down, and they will rejoice in Him. John Newton again. I have reason to praise Him for my trials. For, most probably, I should have been ruined without them. 
or back to Calvin. Part of our reflection for the day. And I've, I quoted this a few weeks ago and I thought it pertinent to bring it up again. For we will never really trust Him unless we learn to distrust ourselves. We will never lift up our hearts to Him unless they are first laid low in us. We will never receive His true comfort unless we ourselves are discomforted. And so before Messiah does His amazing work of of justification, usually He does the amazing work of humiliation so that we stop trusting in ourselves and in the things that we think will save us that can't. Jesus' purpose in our bad backs, in our dead cars, in our wayward children, in our difficult marriages, whatever our afflictions might be, His purpose, if we are Christians, is to gain more of our hearts. That's His goal. So we see that we are intended to come to greater understanding, to accept instruction. We see that in Psalm 119, rather. It was for my good that you afflicted me so that I might be made wise, so that I might trust in your instruction. And so to those who sit there right now kind of going, I'm still on the outside looking in. Maybe no one else knows this about me, but I'm that guy, I'm that person who, who maybe I, I come and I, I say all the words and sing all the songs and I stand and sit when I'm supposed to, but my heart is far from God. From Joel 2, even now declares the Lord. Return to Me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. In other words, don't make just an outward show, but rend your heart and offer it to Him. That's part of what Jesus is getting at when He tells us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we'll get back to that in another sermon in this series. But the point is that Jesus comes to destroy your kingdom in order to establish His. And so, even as Christians, sometimes we can get lapsed back into the idea of our kingdom matters. You know, my rules matter, my security matters, my significance matters, and anyone or anything that gets in the way of these things, my satisfaction, hellfire, my hellfire will fall on them. We get that way. 
And that's where Jesus is pointing out to us. You're living in the wrong kingdom, buddy. You're living for the wrong kingdom. I'm going to burn that one down. Come to my better kingdom. Come and find it all in me. Well, that is what this is about. The coming of Jesus as a baby was not to make us feel good, but to give us a new and better kingdom. That old age, depression, economic and emotional, and nothing else can take away. And so one reason that Jesus is the unwanted Messiah is that he inevitably establishes his kingdom. His kingdom is a challenge to our own kingdoms. Our understanding of the American dream, with all of its idols of security and satisfaction and significance, He must be our security. He must be our satisfaction. He must be our significance. Or He will topple all the rivals that erect themselves in our hearts. And I I suspect that people intuitively understand this, and I fear that many run until he shows them just how worthless all those substitutes really are. So when affliction comes to you, heed its voice. Cry out to Jesus. Draw me closer. I need you more than I need my will to be fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that for those upon whom you have set your love, nothing will stand in the way. And that you will allow nothing to stand in the way. So Father, these afflictions are designed not to drive us from you, but to drive us back to you. Not that we would experience loss, but that we would experience greater gain. And Father, that only happens when we have faith in you. That only happens when we trust you and we have a default to not trust you. And so we ask that the Holy Spirit would come and enable us to trust you. To trust you when things don't seem right. When things seem upside down. To know that you are at work that this is exactly what we needed to bring us to where you intend us to be. So help us to trust not only in your power, but also in your goodness, in your mercy and compassion. Work by your Spirit that we would indeed give you our hearts. that when we lapse into formalism, you'll shake us and say, I want you. 
draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Father, I sense we need this. Your word says we do. And so we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.